welcome to another episode of the Trading Desk Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Thanos, and today the topic will be somewhat of a controversial topic, one that uh, maybe some authorized dealers are uh, not so happy that I'm, uh, I'm approaching, um, but uh, I think it's, a, it's an important topic, and uh, while most of us probably know deep down this is how it works, there's not too many people who are openly talking about about uh, how wait lists and selective selling actually work. And uh, there's a lot of people who complain about these things. So um, I'm happy to talk about the reality of the situation and uh, kind of straighten some things out. So uh, so we'll go ahead and get started. But first, as always, we have the customary risk check. So today I'm wearing uh, what I consider my most Miami watch. Uh, this weekend was Art Basel here in uh, South Florida. And uh, so I would have, wouldn't have made sense to wear any other watch, but the, uh, my Audemars Piguet, uh, my Titanium Offshore, the 26170Ti. And uh, this watch just was just re-released by Audemars with the new, uh, the new movement, open case back, and the ceramic pushers. Uh, this is the 42 millimeter offshore chronograph on the full titanium bracelet. And uh, it's a watch that I bought last year. I've been enjoying. And uh, every time I think about selling the watch, I, I find a reason not to. And it just stays in the collection. And luckily, it's become more valuable too. So it'll be harder to replace for the money that I put into it. So uh, there's less incentive to sell it though. If it gets, if, if it reaches the heights of what the new one is is listed for in the you know more than fifty thousand dollars and and it'll probably find its way out of the collection for uh, maybe another independent brand but uh yeah that's on the wrist today great watch and uh one that i think is still a value if you you can find them online there's people i think someone just listed one for twenty five thousand bucks which seems cheap in the world of ap these days so so check it out the two six one seven zero ti is the reference. All right, guys. So today, if you haven't guessed it, uh, it is a solo uh, pod. I, uh, I, <clears throat> I have a few topics that I want to cover with a few guests, but, um, in light of today's or this morning's release of the Tiffany dial Nautilus and, uh, the, uh, the kind of outrage over hype watches and, uh, over wait list watches um, I thought this was a good topic to, to cover. It's one that, that I have been thinking about for a while and I wanted to discuss. So let's go ahead and get started. So first, you know, what's, let's, let's talk about what a waitlist watch is, what a waitlist is and, uh, the reality of the situation, right? So I guess you'll, you'll start going back, let's say 10 years where 10 years ago, essentially any watch you wanted was available through the authorized dealer. They usually had everything in stock. Um, due to realistically an overproduction based on market demand, right? Um, and I would say about 10 years ago, you could get almost any watch, and, and we're going to start with Rolex because they're kind of the the standard, right? Uh, you could almost get any Rolex at about 25% off, depending on how well you knew your authorized dealer. And where we were located, where you were located. So if you were in a market that was a little more saturated, maybe it was a little tougher to get some of the 
more popular models, but um, say like a Daytona, even Daytona's were really always kind of on a wait list. And that was on a true wait list uh, in the sense that they would sell as fast as they came in. So if you, if you wanted to buy the watch, you just have to wait till the, till the dealer got enough stock in order to fill your order. So that's where the idea of the wait list kind of came. But besides that, really like Submariners, GMTs, Datejust, Presidents for the most part, everything was pretty much available on hand and, and uh, Rolex would ship essentially more than would sell on hand. So there was never really a wait list. Um, so fast forward to, let's say 2015 or so, right? Um, the uh, social media has really kind of taken hold, right, in, our, in pop culture. Uh, people are able to uh, educate themselves on many different things very quickly, right? So you had, well, before that, and, and I guess I, I do consider the social media as well, but you have internet forums. I mean, I'm, I grew up in the 90s. I've been on internet forums, uh, whether it be um, MMA.TV for, uh, for the UFC forums um, or it be, you know, Reddit um, or, you know, the, the Rolex forums or any of the the watch related, I mean, you know, social media started before Instagram and Facebook, but uh, it was more about message boards and whatnot, and people started educating themselves that way, right? So, but before this, you know, the the way to educate yourself about watches or watch collecting is realistically, you just have to know somebody, right? So if you didn't know a guy, how else would you get educated or how else would you educate yourself on watches? You have to take a chance. A lot of times it would be a very expensive learning curve, right? So we fast forward to say 2015. So now social media, you know, Facebook is, is widespread. Everyone's grandmothers are on Facebook. Um, you know, by then, by, by that year as well, Instagram has been around for what, three or four years. So it is also kind of widespread. Some of the larger Instagram accounts are starting to take hold. So watch a niche. I mean, I could look back, but I, I remember when I got, when I started in this industry, watch a niche, I feel like had less than a hundred thousand followers, maybe had that many. And now he's, I think he's got over a million. So, um, and, you know, he was the first kind of really large, um, watch account online, but, you know, people started sharing pictures of watches and, and, you know, Instagram was kind of made for that. I feel like, uh, and then there was videos that, uh, people were out to share. So it was, you could find out about different watches very quickly and uh, you could educate yourself much faster without having to spend thousands and thousands of dollars or waste thousands of dollars on watches that maybe weren't worth it, watches you didn't like, or watches they didn't trade. So, you know, there was there was not much liquidity in the market before this time. So around that time, it starts to take hold. Um, shortly after that, um, there was some pretty notable events. So there was... Um, Rolex Daytona, Paul Newman was auctioned off, I think it was $17 million. That that was uh, mainstream media news. So people now who never even thought about watches or, or maybe they knew what a Rolex was just by name, but they probably couldn't pick one out of a lineup of watches. Now they know what a Rolex Daytona is, right? It was one sold for $17 million. It was on all the talk shows. I remember like uh, on Regis, I think Regis, it was still Regis back then, or maybe, maybe he... Maybe it wasn't, but whatever. Uh, on on like the Good Morning America, they were talking about these things. So now this was, you know, a, a watch sale was mainstream media. You also have Instagram, you have Facebook, 
and uh, and demand starts growing in the watch world in general, right? Um, the economy essentially in America has fully recovered from the 2008 crash, and uh, you know money is money is flowing. People are more educated. Large talks of auction results starts people you know driving people towards Rolex in general. So <clears throat> so the Rolex boutiques are drying up, right? So the so the watches start start drying up. So Daytonas are the first ones. Um, you know, even before the ceramic Daytona, you know, the, the one, the one, one, six, five, two zeros started drying up. And then in 2016, they released the new ceramic versions and those watches have never, ever traded at their retail. Um, I, like I can confirm that. Absolutely. Those watches from day one were trading 18 to $20,000 immediately, even up to 25. And then they bounced around a bit. Uh, but so that was the first watch where, um, from day one, it was well over the retail price. And then it, it created a little bit of a, of a, um, a craze. So then people start like, Oh, well, if I can't get Daytona, then I'll get the Submariner or if I can't, or it's really the GMT was the, was the one that people started chasing. So that was the second watch that kind of popped. Um, and then I think the next year after that, they released the sky dweller in stainless steel. Before that, it was only in precious metal on a strap or precious metal on a bracelet. So the Sky, Del- Sky Dweller in stainless steel, second watch that never really traded at its retail, or the Blue Dial definitely didn't. The white and the black kind of fluctuated a bit, uh, but it kind of it, so it creates a um, a real market around Rolex. People start looking at oh, well, you know, you buy a Rolex, you can make money, right? So then that's, that's becomes the talk and then it kind of catches fire from there. Right. So then model by model. So it was the, the Daytona sky dweller GMT at the same time. Um, and then certain models started popping here and there 5711 at the same time as well from, from Patek started gaining heat. So people are looking at watches in general as, you know, I guess as an investment, which was still made people in the industry, including myself, queasy to talk about and think about. Um, but, you know, people coming into the industry, like outsiders, people who had never really bought watches before, looked at those saying, oh, you know, they had heard that you never lose money on a, on a Rolex, which really wasn't true. I mean, many people lost money on Rolex up to that point. Um, you know, it obviously had to do with how much you paid for the watch, right? That was the main factor. Um but say, hey, you know, if I go buy a Rolex, especially at retail, I'm not going to lose money. So, so people started buying them, flipping them to other people who believe that if you bought one, essentially at any price, that you wouldn't lose money. So it was like a self fulfilling prophecy there, and um, and then it it kind of whipped up into a frenzy, right? So more buyers in the market. Uh, watching prices rising, hearing about people buying them through retail, flipping them for large uh, profits, making five or ten thousand dollars on a on a on a watch flip. You know, you spend fifteen, you get twenty five. Okay, well that sounds like a no brainer. Who wouldn't do that? So uh, you know, it just kind of built from there, right? Um, Patek Philippe fifty seven eleven uh, in blue dial. That's also another watch that at the roughly at that same time started kind of 
rising in price. So this is a watch that, I mean, I remember I've sold one as low as $18,000. And that was when the retail, I think was like around 22 or so. So that watch ends up starting to trade closer to the retail, starts sliding above retail, starts going from 20, 20, say 18 to 22 to 25 to 30 to 35 into 27, 2018 to 40, 45. And at that point, people were asking me, hey, should I sell this watch? And this is a bubble. And my thoughts were absolutely it's a bubble. It's his madness. That watch is not worth $45,000. It's a $20,000 watch. It has been for a long time. You know, I would sell it. Well, I was, so this, this was my advice back in 2017, 2018. Clearly, I'm an idiot. Uh, and definitely don't take my advice on, on how to time the market in selling a watch because I gave a lot of bad advice at that time. But honestly, none of us knew. We just, I just assumed, you know, I've always been somewhat bearish <clears throat> about things like this anyways. So I just assumed like there's no way. You know, my mentality was, oh, it's the same group of guys just kind of chasing now one or two references. And, you know, they're going to either give up on them or lose interest or something's going to happen where those guys are going to lose money and it's going to pop, right? This is, I mean, we have, Jason and I have videos on uh, uh, on YouTube talking about this exact topic back in the, during those days. You can go back and scroll through old trading desk uh episodes and see what the prices were and, and hear what we were saying. We believe that this was truly a, uh, a bubble because, you know, why wouldn't it be? How could this watch certain, like all of a sudden double or triple in value? Um, so, you know, we started, we started seeing more and more references, people chasing, people chasing. And uh, now, you know, things started drying up to the retail. So in the past, when you could get a Submariner at retail, you can get a Submariner at 10% discount pretty much across the board. Date or no date and steel, two-tone, even you know, bigger discounts. These things started drying up. So as people walked in and wanted a Daytona, they couldn't get a Daytona. Well, you know, do you have a GMT? No, no GMT. Oh, what about a Skydweller? No Skydweller. Okay. And they would just go down the list and start picking watches. And uh, so now, you know, the idea of a wait list became kind of like a mainstream idea. You know, this is something that people, again, it was like a real thing at one time where, you know, if you wanted a, a Daytona 10 years ago, maybe, you know, the authorized dealer would only get two or three in a month and uh, those would sell pretty quickly. So you'd have to wait, you know, and maybe they would have 10 people on a list legitimately and you'd maybe have to wait three or four months to get your allocation of the watch because it just, it was a function of, how many they truly got in stock. But, you know, that that starts to change now, right? So Rolex has never been happy about people flipping watches. Really, no Swiss company has ever been, you know, uh, never, they, they've never they never been comfortable with people buying watches and trying to flip them immediately, right? Like Paddock, their, uh, their slogan is, has been what? You don't, act, you don't actually own a Paddock, you just... Look after, looked after it for the next uh, generation, right? This is the kind of the idea. And, that, and, you know, prior to, you know, 20, say 2018 or so, Swiss watch industry was like very queasy on, on, the, on the secondary market. They looked at it like secondary market is gray market. And, uh, you know, we don't, we, we're not interested in, in what happens to these watches after they sell for the first time. And anybody who deals in them is, is like, you know, 
maybe looked at like as a crook or something, right? Like this is the mentality, right? Which, you know, they were, they were, they were definitely lacking in their foresight because <clears throat> what they didn't realize is that, you know, if I want to buy, if I, if I buy whatever, whatever watch it is, say a 5205, right? And I, I want to buy that annual calendar. It's a gorgeous watch. And I spend whatever, 40,000 bucks on that watch. Well, you know, how long is it going to take me to save up another $40,000 to buy the next paddock reference? Well, maybe I wear that watch for a year or two. I love it. I get all the enjoyment I, I ever wanted out of it. And I decide, okay, well, I can sell it. So say I pay buy it back in the day, I bought it for 40 through retail or, and uh, maybe I sell it for 25,000 bucks recoup, you know, more than half my money and then go buy another paddock reference. Cause it's easier to say for me to save that 15 than it is that 40. So, you know, the way that they should have been looking at it was the secondary market is going to aid in helping collectors, you know, really understand the watches, buy more uh, new watches and, um, and, you know, help fund their essential addiction, right? That's what this kind of is for a lot of us. Um, but so, you know, Rolex and Paddock around 2017, 2018, were trying to crack down on um on what they called flippers you know this is where like the idea of watch flippers i mean before this watch flippers just meant you bought the watch you know you sold the watch maybe you didn't make a profit you just got rid of the watch um because you were done with it but now watch flippers is hey i'm buying this watch at retail so that i can turn around the next day sell it to either an end consumer or a gray market dealer who's willing to pay market price for this watch and I'll pocket the difference. So Rolex and Paddock were not uh, were not comfortable with these flippers. They started putting out, uh, sending out memos to the dealers saying, "Hey, you have to vet your buyers. You know, if we catch, if we find one of the watches that you sold on a gray market website, you know, within a, a year of of you selling it or something along those lines, then you know, there's there's going to be." action taken and dealers were shut down and they still are today, by the way. So, so dealers across the board, well, number one, I think it was in 20, either 18 or 19 Rolex quietly shut down like over a hundred dealers in the United States. Um, I think that's the number. Uh, and, uh, and a lot of it had to do with how, what they felt was like, you know, control over distribution. They thought, Oh, well, you know, if they have, if they have less dealers, then, they can have more, uh, there'll be more control over distribution. There'll be less flippers, which realistically, I don't know if that, if that exactly works. I mean, there's not a really a great way for Rolex to, to really handle this, this scenario. Um, that's going to make everybody happy and, and kind of also allow them to achieve, you know, their goal of just kind of staying out of the distribution model, right? Like uh, they, they don't want to be de- dealing directly with the, with the end consumer realistically. This is not what Rolex wants to do. They want to make their watches and they, they don't mind having a dealer network. So um so then so they shut down a lot of dealers and now what you have left is mostly larger dealers who maybe have a larger consumer base who had already kind of figured out that they need to vet their buyers, right? So they can't just sell to anybody who walks through the door. They need to make sure that any, whoever they're selling to is not someone who's going to be putting their business at risk in the sense of turning around and selling it to, you know, a David SW type character or Bob's watches or one of these 
one of these websites that it's going to post it on, post it for sale the next day, fully stickered, you know, showing the date of purchase, you know, just the week before, right? Um, so they need to protect themselves. So this is where the idea of the wait list becomes kind of mainstream and where collectors start getting pissed, right? So like guys who say you were buying Rolexes for 20 years before this, right? So say you started buying Rolexes in the 90s and, you know, you wouldn't have bought that watch unless you got your 25% discount, right? Well, now, not only can you not get a discount, you can't get that watch. It's going to, it'll either, it's either you legitimately are going to wait, um, you know, months or years, or you're not going to get it at all. And you're going to have to go to the gray market and pay market value. So number one, it's kind of a, it's kind of a funny scenario. And, and I've had guys complain to me like, oh, I'd never pay over retail. But then we're talking, the guy's talking to me about how he would only, he would only, only ever buy a Rolex if he got a 25% discount. So, so my question is, so the, the reason why you were getting a 25% discount is because you didn't want to pay retail. You wanted to pay market price because you knew that the Rolex wasn't worth the retail price, right? So now, now that the market price is above the retail, now you want to disregard the market price. And now you really want to focus on the retail price. It's kind of disingenuous in my opinion. I mean, I, I understand where it's coming from. And again, this is a luxury good. You can buy it however you want. But if we're going to be if we're going to like be um, consistent and you know honest with ourselves, like if you you were paying market then, it just happened to be below the retail price. So then, what's the problem paying market now above? You know, maybe you don't feel like the watch is worth you know double the retail price, and that's fair. That's a real real scenario, but to, to, to all of a sudden start, you know, uh, demanding to stick to retail. It's like, well, you didn't demand to stick to retail when the watches were available at 25% off. Right. So, I mean, that's, that's another, I guess that's a whole different, uh, scenario. And I really wasn't, I personally didn't really run into that too much because well, I definitely was not a, I was not part of an authorized dealer group back when those watches were worth 25% off. So, um, but, uh, but that is, that is something to think about as well. But, uh, so, so now wait lists, right? So, so guys start walking in, new buyers are hearing, oh, you can buy a, you can go buy a Rolex and it's worth way more than you, than you, uh, than you paid. And so you're buying something that's worth, uh, worth all this money. It's a great watch, blah, blah, blah. So you, you walk into say mayors here in Boca Raton and the person behind the desk who, uh, you know, or behind the, the empty case tells you, oh, well, there's, you know, we, you, we don't have the watch available. So you say, okay, well, you know, can you put my name on a list? So now the, the person behind the desk has, or behind the, the case has two options here. They can either say, yeah, sure, take down your information. And when you walk away, that information may or may not end up in the trash. Or they can be honest with you, right? And say, hey, listen, realistically, we have, we're a capacity in, in the sense of customers. We have many repeat customers that we know and trust. And these watches are essentially allocated for the foreseeable future to those customers. Okay. So they could say that to you, which might be actually tough to articulate and might turn into an uncomfortable situation. Or they could look at your face, say, yeah, sure, sure. Let me, yeah, it's going to be a five-year wait for this Daytona. But let me take your 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 name and number down, right? And that's just realistically a way to get you out of their face without having to tell you that you're not going to get what you're asking for. You know, 
chances are that person's not going to be working there in five years. And if they are, I mean, I well, realistically, I had a situation where I, I, I went to my local AD before all this madness happened. Back when watches were somewhat available, I wanted to purchase, legitimately purchase a Note 8 sub at a time when they should have been available. And uh, I guess it was right around the time when things started getting a little bit bonkers. And uh, the person told me, the salesperson told me it'd be two weeks, which I was, I was a little skeptical, but I'm like, all right, you know, the, the Note 8 sub was not trading for over list. I thought there was a good chance I'd get the watch. So two weeks go by, I reach out. They say, oh, I can't believe it hasn't come in yet. You know, just, you know, give me another week. So after about two or three months of me reaching out, finally the person said, hey, what's your name again? That's when I knew that this person, there was no list. Well, I mean, I knew there's no list because I'm in the industry. But the fact is that she, this person had no intention of ever selling me this watch. They were just going to tell me what I wanted to hear in order to, to kind of bypass a uncomfortable situation in person and uh, was just hopefully, hopefully I was just going to forget about it. And that's, that's the reality essentially of the wait list for a new customer off the street, right? I mean, there are some edge cases. I mean, I talked to a guy yesterday. He said that, you know, he, he was able to buy some new paddocks from, from an authorized dealer that like, I mean, nobody really is able to buy. I mean, these are not Nautiluses, but still, like watches that are that are not easy to get. Um, he went to a small authorized dealer in a southern town. I mean, he was referred by a, by a friend who had purchased from them before, so maybe that was the way. There was a reason, but again, these are edge cases. You're going to hear these little things, but it's not the rule. I mean, you can you can try to fool yourself into thinking that. I mean, realistically, if you want to travel around the United States, walking in out of small ads might even be worth it based on the amount of profit you can make. But realistically, now you're, <laughs> you're kind of the reason why, uh, why this is, you know, why we're in this mess essentially, because, you know, flippers really are the, the reason, I guess, you know, why these watches are worth so much is that guys are buying them so that they can take allocation from people realistically who are going to wear them. You know, that's, again, that's a whole other thing, but you know, from guys who I guess would truly wear the watch sell at a profit and then the guys who really really want it who don't want to wait or don't want to not don't want to you know look for a different reference or they really want that watch they're just going to pay up um but uh but realistically that's the reality of the wait list is 99% of the time if you have never purchased anything from this authorized dealer and you walk in and ask for a reference that you know is worth say double the retail price right so, so there are references that sell at or or slightly above that original retail that you might actually be able to get your hands on with, you know, in a reasonable amount of time, you know, but, um, but if you're asking for a Daytona, if you're asking for a GMT, if you're asking for a sky dweller and the person nicely, you know, is nice to your face, doesn't tell you no, doesn't give you any indication that you're not going to get the watch. It says, Oh yeah, this will be a three year waiting list or something along those lines. Takes your name. Chances that you're going to get that call in three years or ever is slim to none. So let's not like, that's the first thing. Let's not fool ourselves into thinking that there truly is a wait list. Just understand that's, that is unfortunately a way for some maybe weaker uh, boutique staff, I guess, to avoid an uncomfortable situation. Um, I mean, I've walked into the Audemars Piguet boutique 
in Manhattan, and I asked for a ladies' watch, a uh, two-tone 34 uh, Royal Oak. And the, the guy was really nice. I told him I was in the industry. I bought some straps from him, and I said, hey, legitimately, I want to buy this watch for my wife. You know, this was her uh, – I would like to buy it for her as, as a present. And, you know, I'm not asking for a man's watch because I know that's not going to happen. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, we should be able to get this for you. And this was in the summer. I doubt that guy has my number. I mean, I, they did put my name and info into their actual system because I bought some straps. So they, they put it in there. But do I ever expect to hear get a call from that guy? Absolutely not. Do I hold it against him? Not exactly. I mean, again, like, you know, he doesn't know who I am. He does. It's just easier for them to take the name and the number than it would be for them to have the conversation I'm having with you now and say, listen, by the way, you know, I'd love to sell you something if I could. Yeah, we just, we don't make enough watches to, you know, satiate the entire market. So we have to be selective about whoever we sell to. So again, so that's the next topic, I guess, selective selling, right? So the first part is the wait list, which is it, for all intents and purposes, it's, it's not, it's really non-existent. I mean, there are guys who get watches. So I've heard some crazy stories. Like I, I know a guy who bought a tutor from his local authorized dealer on the West coast the United States. And then they called him for a blue sky. Dollar. It was bonkers. I know the guy, he flipped it. He flipped it immediately. He called, flipped it to me, to us. I mean, I bought the watch. Um, so, I mean, they shouldn't, I guess they certainly shouldn't have sold it to him, but he had bought a tutor before this. Um, I mean, guys, <laughs> I hear all these stories because those watches end up with me. Um, but uh, so there are some strange cases where people get watches that they haven't, I guess, earned in a sense. And that, that's always weird because it's like, you know, you earn a, you earn something by spending money. It's, it's not it's kind of uncomfortable. But um, that's that's where I guess the second part of this is selective selling. Right. So, you know, how do how does an authorized dealer of a brand that has a certain allocation and has to, and, and is beholden to selling at retail, right? Cause that's like the main thing. Like if an authorized Rolex dealer gets caught trying to sell at a premium, immediate termination of, of the brand, then they can lose at this point millions of dollars. So I don't know any um, dealers who are actively selling over the retail price. It's just not worth it. Like one watch, two watches. I mean, if you were doing it across the board and you say you doubled the amount of income you have, I mean, you would have, now you have all these, um, you have all these guys walking around, walking around the street who all it takes is one guy to call Rolex, you know, any evidence that you've done something like this is going to, is, is going to, they're going to close you. It doesn't matter who you are. Um, so I'd say that the, the penalty for selling over list is so great that it's, it's a tremendous deterrent, especially with how valuable, I mean, there's no watches are, are left in, in the case. I mean, even ladies watches at this point are, are selling, you know, uh, at or above their retail um, pre-owned. So, so there's just, there, there's no incentive really for them to sell over list. Um, Cause they're just, the, the penalties are so great. So, um, but so how do you determine who to sell to, right? So you just take and you just do like a first come first serve. Well, I mean, I'm sure if I was a buyer, I would say that's the only fair way to do it. But from a retailer's perspective, if I've never sold you anything, I don't know who you are and you just promise me that you're not going to sell it. What are the chances I'm going to trust my say 
10 or $20 million worth of revenue per year with you. Like, why would I do that? Why would anybody do that? If you were me, you wouldn't do that, right? If you were an authorized dealer of a Rolex uh, and you, you owned a Rolex dealership in your area and some guy walked in, you know, you, he says, listen, man, I swear, I just want to wear the watch. So you sell him the, the, the ceramic Daytona and then the watch shows up on a website next week and he just says, well, you know, too bad. Like, what, who would do that? Nobody would. You're, you're just asking for trouble, right? No matter what. I mean, you can have heard, heard authorized dealers trying to get people to sign things, keep, they're holding back warranty cards. The watches are still worth well over their list price, even without the warranty card. Like, what you have to do is you have to sell to trusted people, right? So essentially what's happened at this point, for the most part, is you're selling to people who you know have have bought watches that are not worth more than what they paid. So they're they're true watch collectors, right? That's like, I mean, how else would you would you figure, right? Um, you know, maybe they maybe they bought a few watches here or there that are really strong and that they're worth it. Um, but otherwise, you know, say say you're an authorized dealer of Rolex as well as some of the Richemont brands like JLC or IWC, making cool watches that you have to sell at a discount. But even at a discount, the watch is not worth you know more than the customer's paying. So you know that you know, he understands that he's, he's not buying these to flip. So at that point, then you can trust the guy. Maybe you have a longstanding relationship and now you can start selling watches to him. So that's where you're going to go with, with a lot of this stock that goes there. And then also referrals of those people. So now, now it turns into essentially selective selling, but it's not because, I mean, it, it's, it's more out of preser- preservation than it is, of greed. I mean, the idea of, of these authorized dealers being greedy and selling, I mean, I'm sure that's happened before. Authorized dealers have flipped watches. You know, they felt safe enough to sell a certain watch for a large profit to make, you know, make a little extra money here and there. But the, uh, to do it in any type of widespread manner is so detrimental. You, you're going to get caught. I mean, Rolex is actively shopping. They're buying watches. I mean, I know for a fact, Rolex is trolling some of these websites, shopping them, buying watches that have, you know, sale dates within, you know, a few months of, of, of the watch being listed on the website and then tracking down the authorized dealer and shutting them down. This is absolutely happening. Um, so the incentive is to sell the watch to somebody who's, either going to eventually sell it back to you as an authorized dealer, as a pre-owned watch, right? So you have control over everything. You know that this is not like being flipped. So the, the profit at that point still stays with the customer. It's not really with the authorized dealer. Um, or it's somebody who's just going to keep the watch. Like this, this is what you need uh, as a, as an authorized dealer. This is, this is what you're looking for. You're looking for somebody who's, who's not, the incentive is not big enough. So either they're going to trade it back towards maybe a more expensive watch, um, you know, and then they can control where that watch maybe ends up and uh, down the road, but it's it's not being taken from the authorized dealer directly to a gray market seller. Um, and again, it, in all these equations, who's profiting? It's, it's, the, it's the first owner, right? This is really the, this is, these are the people who really can't be penalized. I mean, the penalty would just be you lose any further Rolex allocation. That's going to be the penalty for uh, for that customer, which, I mean, a lot of these people are, are certainly willing to um, 
they're certainly willing to take that risk, especially when you you know you buy a watch for say you know fifteen thousand bucks and you can sell it for forty. Like that, you know, twenty five thousand dollars is a lot of money to almost anybody. So um, you know that's where most of the profit lies. Even going into the gray market, you know, I, at this point, I definitely, I mean, I'd say the gray market in the past used to be buying watches for well below retail. So you know, you'd get what they call closeouts, or you'd get dealers who had stock that was hard to move, and they would they would sell all the all the good stuff for list price, and then they would in order to, to just move out the rest of the stuff, they would sell it even below their cost to the gray market. And that's where you'd see these watches for like, like new watches listed for deep discounts, in the gray market. That's, that's how a lot of the gray market buyers um, kind of operated. But nowadays, you know, the gray market buyers deal at market price. So they're buying them most likely, most of the watches are buying from the, uh, from the first buyer not directly from the authorized dealers, which certainly was the case in the past. You know, authorized dealers would, would offload, you know, ladies' pieces, two-tone pieces, watches that were hard to, to sell through their retail. If they would sit for months and months and months or a year, they would certainly sell them to these gray market dealers just to recoup the cash and, and you know, be able to place more orders with Rolex for stuff that they could sell. So yeah, I mean that's kind of the I guess the landscape here. I mean this is this is realistically how it's working it right now, um, and uh, you know in terms of the hype, I guess so. I guess one thing I haven't touched on, but I've touched on it many times before, is you know what's driving all this. And in the past, I really be- believed it was um, you know the same group of guys who were just chasing certain models, but now unequivocally. I think we we can all the data shows that this is new buyers in the market. Um, the level of the new level of education that you can gain um, through social media and YouTube and and all these forums and whatnot it is so vast that a guy can become a very educated watch buyer within just a few months, whereas it used to take years. So now it might have taken you say ten years to go from buying Rolexes, right? So safe purchases a brand you understood watches you like that people, everyone knew to say, it would take 10 years from going from that to like, even like a JLC or something like that. Right now, nowadays I have guys who started buying watches in 2019 or, and they started buying Rolexes in 2019, maybe spending 10, 15, 20,000. And now they're looking to spend two, $300,000 on Jorns, on paddocks, on, you know, esoteric brands that are, that, you know, used to trade for well below, um, you know, they're, they're looking for actual rarity and, and whatnot. So, you know, everything's being driven by demand and that's what we're seeing. And, and I'm, maybe some of these guys are just flippers. They don't really ever care about the watches. Um, but I think that if, and when the watch market kind of slows down and cools down, what's going to be left is a much larger pool of buyers than was ever before. Right. So right now I'd say there's three to five times as many buyers as there was just five years ago. And that, that number is growing. So say 10 years from now, uh, you know, things cool down and people are not looking to say, quote unquote, invest in watches and flip them. Um, there's still going to be a large contingency of, of buyers that, you know, unless the Swiss watch world decides to start overproducing again, which I can't imagine that they would ever want to go back to kind of how it was before. Cause it was tough, you know, um, 
it was not easy for a lot of these brands. You know, they lost money on a lot of watches. And uh, so I think a lot of them have learned from their mistakes and they realize, well, you know, if we just, if, if we can hang on to the, the current amount of demand or some, something near that and just um, keep producing what we have been for the longest time, then, you know, we can make all the money we want and uh, we don't have to worry about, you know, closing out 25% of our stock every year and selling them back door for pennies on the dollar and devaluing the brand, uh, you know, as a whole. The days of, of closeouts for the most part is really gone for most brands. So even brands that, you know, Omega, um, all the Richemont brands, Swash Group brands that used to truly at, at the end of each year would close out, you know, millions of dollars worth of their inventory. And you would see it just pop up on the Joma shops and the, and the authentic watches of the world. Now it doesn't happen really. You know, the Joma shop and authentic watches are buying and trading watches. You know, in order to stay relevant, you have to, because uh, this is, this is the new kind of state of things. So, um, but yeah, I guess, I guess that's, that's basically it. I, hopefully I covered everything that I wanted to. I mean, it's pretty, in my mind, it's, this is all pretty um, uh, obvious, but you know, I guess if you're not in it all day long, I mean, there's a lot of guys, by the way, I mean, in the world we live in today, everyone seems like they're looking for conspiracy theory. So, and, and, you know, the, the Rolex shortage or Rolex, you know, cutting uh, inventory or cutting production, which by the way, so our production, our, uh, so uh, Godberg Jewelers, which essentially owns um, Watchbox, um, is an authorized dealer of Rolex in Philadelphia. And I believe uh, last I checked, our, we received more watches in 2021 than we did in 2019. So, you know, if there's, if there's a shortage, I don't know, how you account for that because we, you know, the production is up and, you know, they, they increase production very slightly year over year and they make their production schedules years in advance. That's what they've been doing. You know, the, the uh, Rolex uh, paddock, same thing. These, these guys are not cutting production. This is, this is a result of increased demand and a, you know, a, a basically a zero reaction from, from the production side, from the supply side. And, you know, this is, this is kind of the world we live in for the, for the time being. Will it, is it a bubble that's going to pop? Well, I mean, I thought so years ago and it, it hasn't happened. The, the more, the more new buyers that come in, I think the safer you are in buying watches in total. And, and while, you know, essentially people talk about things that are hard to get, I mean, nothing's really hard to get, right? Like Daytonas are not hard to get. I mean, there's hundreds of them available on Chrono24, on eBay, on Watchbox.com. We have a lot of them. You just have to buy them at market price. And that's that's the reality of it. So um, they cost more to buy, but you know, you in the end, they're much more liquid. So it's not. It's truly not going to cost you anything to sell that watch. So maybe Daytona's have always kind of been that way, but I mean, now a Rolex president that. If you bought a Rolex President at whatever thirty eight thousand dollars retail, you would be selling that to a gray market or or, or like a, a reseller for around twenty thousand bucks or sometimes less. So you know, even precious metal watches, white gold used to be like used to be the sucker's bet. Like, why would you buy a white gold sport watch, like a white gold GMT or white gold Yachtmaster, if they made it in stainless steel? Who the hell would spend that money on that watch? 
when you could buy the watch in stainless steel for less nowadays, there's, a, there's enough demand or even those washes are, are liquid. So there's really no mistakes when buying most of these watches. I mean, there are plenty of brands that definitely trade below retail, but even, even Panerai's are stronger than they were, you know, four or five years ago. I mean, I, all my Panerai's are still worth less than I paid. Um, you know, and I don't ever assume them ever going, you know, above kind of what I paid at user price, but there's, it's less of a loss. So I'd say overall, it's, it's really good for the market. I know it's, it's not great if you have a limited budget and, you know, that's the reality of the world, I guess, in some sense. But, um, if you look at it for what it truly will cost you to own the watch, if you, if you're a guy who only owns a, that buys a watch and sells it after two or three years and, you know, used to take massive hits on these things, you don't get, you don't have to take those hits anymore. So for those guys, you'd have to spend a few more bucks. So you have to save up a little bit more, but in the end, the true cost is definitely less. So I'd say, while this certainly is annoying and, you know, having the, uh, you know, as an authorized dealer of certain brands, having to look people in the face and tell them, sorry, I can't take your thirty, forty thousand dollars or fifteen to fifteen, twenty thousand dollars for you know this one good because I just don't have anything available. You know, that's not a, a comfortable conversation to have, but in the end, you know, you can buy it at market price and it's really not going to cost you anything to get back out of it. So it is an all boats rise scenario. I'd say that, you know, there is that's my I guess my silver lining. Um and, uh, but if you, if you've never bought a Rolex from your authorized dealer, you've never walked in that place into that building and you walk in and you ask them for a watch and they tell, they tell you they're going to put your name on a waiting list. Don't believe the lie. I mean, realistically, it's not happening. So sorry to burst the bubble. Uh, and uh, I guess that's it. We're on 45 minutes here. I guess I'll go ahead and wrap this up. If you're still listening, like always, you're a champion. We love you. Um, check out the rest of the podcast. We're at, this is, I think we're in like the 90s now. So I have, there's hours and hours of me, Jason, Sequan Gottlieb, um, Mike Manjos and others. Um, you can scroll through. You can check us out on, on the iTunes app, the, the podcast app on Apple. We're on uh, Spotify. Um, you can check out the old episodes of the trading desk that we did on YouTube. It's still up there on Watchbox Studios. Just go ahead and search, uh, the trading desk. You can see some of those old ones. If you want to get nostalgic to see when, when 5711 was, you know, 25,000 bucks, uh, you know, just scroll back to 2015. We were making those videos then. So, uh, again, thank you so much guys. By the way, you can check me out on Instagram, reach out to me on Instagram at Mr. Thanos, um, and uh, usually I'll get back to you pretty quick. It is the, the busiest time of the year, so don't get too mad if it takes me a week to get back to you. And if it's something urgent, if you want to buy a watch today, you can uh, you can check out my bio and my Instagram says my phone number and my email. People love to send me a DM asking me for my phone number when it's in there. You can see it right there, man. It's always, it's always been posted. So you can text or call me there. That's fine. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, so thanks for listening, guys, and uh, I'll see you next week. See you next Tuesday.